Father, we come before you and aware oftentimes that we don't give voice to our questions and our doubts. And as we do so this morning, as we think through maybe some of the things that keep us from coming to you freely to the throne of grace, the things that keep us from spending time with you, the things that keep us from offering our bodies as living sacrifices, as priests of the new covenant, that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you and to worship you in spirit and truth. There are so many blocks in our hearts, so may some of them be revealed this morning and we consider um, how your grace overcomes them and how we again can return and find rest in you. And uh, we pray that we would be uh, sensitive to your calling on us and your love for us this morning that compels us to worship you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Malachi, it reminds me in a way of um, a parent having a conversation with a stubborn child, right? And you all know what this is like, not only because maybe some of you are parents, but you were all stubborn children at some point in your life, okay? So you know what it's like, right? The clear denial of wrongdoing. Um, the child thinks he knows what's good for him and to protect himself, and also uh, wants to plead ignorance, right? So you have the infamous, oh, what you talking about? I don't know what happened, right? Uh, the clear denial of something clearly known of, of wrongdoing, right? Um, but deep down, there's a few things that can be going on. Uh, there is the, not only the ignorance, and the will for ignorance about sin, but there's oftentimes mistrust that the parent might handle the situation well. Not because necessarily the parent deserves it, but because there is um, the view of the parent from the child's perspective has been skewed. Oftentimes, And this is how it is with us and God. Um, and one of the most important things we can continue to do in our growth process is to recalibrate our view of God, recalibrate our view of his justice and his love and who he reveals himself to be in Christ. Um, and again, that's another plug for the, the ABF, uh, that gentle and lowly going through that book. Recalibrating our view of Christ's heart for us will shape us. And it's going to affect us. And so, you know, we live in a fallen world, though. And our fallen minds are often distorted. They always distort our view of God. And one of the ways that our, our minds get distorted is through suffering. Suffering is frustrating. Suffering, whether it's low-end suffering or whether it's a deep, deep suffering, a loss and pain and, or abuse or neglect or sickness or, or something like that. And oftentimes that, if we aren't continually lamenting and bringing that to God. It distorts our view of God. And Israel was going through a deep amount of suffering. They had just returned from exile, which sounds really good, right? They um, were punished for their unfaithfulness, centuries really of unfaithfulness. But now they think they have a right to inform God about what is really just. You know, God made them promises, and they have those promises of the land and the seed and the blessing to Abraham. He promised that their enemies would be subdued but in their mind, that wasn't even close to becoming real for them at this point. So they had come back from exile, right? Persia had taken over. They were allowed to return. And there was this great sense of tension because they were still oppressed even when they returned. So you have Malachi's contemporaries, Zechariah, Haggai, um, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They're reminding the people of God's promises and who he was that they were still to come to fulfillment. Um, but we have this encouragement from Haggai to build the temple, right? Rebuild the temple. But what happens? Ezra tells us that the men who were old enough to remember the old temple and its glory were crying because it was so lame. And so they're like, what is this? This is not what we expected. 
Um, you know, you have all these passages in Ezekiel about the glory of the temple that's going to come. It's not even close. They're frustrated. They're being oppressed. They're being taxed. Ezra, or Nehemiah says in chapter 9, he says, Behold, we are still slaves. Even though they weren't actually enslaved, it still feels like they were enslaved. He says, In our own land, we are slaves. Behold, we are slaves. It's abundant produce goes to the kings you placed over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they see fit. We are in great distress. And that's the reality on the ground for Israel as they come back from exile. And uh, Malachi shows us that Israel, from the priesthood down to the farmers and the, and the peasants who are offering sacrifices, they were disillusioned with God. Because in their eyes, God didn't keep his promises. And therefore, God was unjust. And so because they believed these lies about God, their worship had suffered. So Malachi writes this, and he puts words into their mouth so they can actually hear what their actions are saying. Um, and so that's the value of what we get in our passage. And uh, they, they are, he's writing to counter their charge that they actually don't know what good is. They don't know what justice is. Uh, they don't know what a covenant-keeping God looks like. And so the goal for us is to identify how our hearts are just like that. How we have blocks in our lives that keep us from coming to God, to keep us from trusting God completely, and then to hear God's response to our doubts, and then worship Him for who He actually is, who He actually promises, what He actually promises, and how He actually comes through for that. Not our made-up version of God that's going to let us down. All right, so that's the goal for today. So we begin in chapter 2, verse 17. We have uh, the, the end of chapter 2 really is um, tied in with the beginning of chapter 3, so that's where we start in 2.17. These are the words Malachi is helping them see by their actions what they're really saying to God. So it's pretty shocking. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him, right? Denial, right? What, what are you talking about, <laughs> right? Uh, when you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? Let's stop there. So this is what happens when we think we're right. Israel thought they were right. They thought that they understood justice. The, we see in their heart attitude, first, that they're claiming ignorance, right? It's the, again, the infamous, I don't know, what are you talking about, right? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. There, there's a challenge, and they're confronted, and they, there's denial, right? And so um, they do this. They do this, and we do the same thing, right, when we're confronted oftentimes. Um, instead of bringing our brokenness to God and, and repenting, we actually want to ignore it, right? We want to squirm out from under the weight of that, conveniently forget what, we, what we've done. And uh, the, the reality is when for you to convince yourself that you're right, you actually have to choose ignorance, right? Um, and so that's what they're doing here. They're choosing to ignore the gravity of the situation. And they're also misunderstanding God's favor. That's huge. It's absolutely huge here. They misunderstand God's favor. They make this statement, right? How do they say this? All who do evil are good in the Lord's eyes. That is a huge statement. He delights in them. So how, do, how can they get to this point and say this? Well, in their minds, what must happen is that they see God's favor as distributing wealth and distributing power instead of what it really is. And since those pagan Persians 
you know, have both wealth and power and are oppressing them, then God just must have thrown out his election of Israel out the window and just started loving on the moon-worshiping Persians. Like that must, that's, that's what happened in their minds, right? So their problem is they, devi- they define God's favor in light of the thing that they think they need, that they think will alleviate their suffering. I need that. That's going to fix me. God's not providing that. He's unjust, right? You see how we get there. Yet God's favor and love is found in his sovereign and gracious salvation of sinful people. It's about providing rest for our souls. It's about looking forward to the divine favor that's poured out on the new creation. But often, that's not enough. It wasn't enough for Israel, right? God says, I I brought you out of Egypt. And they're like, oh yeah, cool. I'm going to make a golden calf, right? But we do the same thing. It's not enough for us. And to have these words put into their mouth, to put into our mouth, right? It sounds really blasphemous, but we do it all the time. And the problem is we have our own kingdoms with our own governing principles, our own view of what's right, what's wrong, what's good for us, right? My wants, my needs, my desires, all those things. And how often do we think God's justice should just look like providing all the things that we think we need? We might say it. We might not actually say these things. The reality is they weren't really saying this either. They were acting like it. And oftentimes we act like it, right? When we think we deserve things. So the question is, what do we feel entitled to so much that when it's gone, we get mad at others or we get mad at God? What is that for you? You Maybe we think we deserve our kids to perfectly respect us. And when they don't, we're shocked, right? Our spouse needs to always agree with us. Um, For me, you know, the, the taxpayer roads need to be free of New Jersey taxpayers. So I can just drive as fast as I want without anybody in my way. And all the lights need to be green. Like that's, that's something I want. Um, but, you know, maybe we're like Israel and we, uh, we have experienced pain. We've experienced trauma. We've experienced heartache. And we've just, it feels like we've just paid something. And we're owed something. We did a few th- good things. We might have suffered. And we're feeling like, God, what, what is going on? You know, I just defeated this sin for once in a thousand times. But I still defeated it. Like, and and I'm, there's no reward. There's no, no payoff. I'm still struggling. Now, when we misunderstand God's favor, we get into really dangerous territory because whenever we get that favor from an earthly source, we'll just start worshiping that idol. And then when that idol lets us down, we confuse that idol with God. And we blame God for the idol letting us down. And it's really dangerous. It's a costly misunderstanding. It's not God punishing you. It's just your idol letting you down. And this misunderstanding causes them to question God's justice. And they say, where is the God of justice? Well, not only do they misunderstand favor, they misunderstand justice. And so after returning from exile, they were being persecuted and oppressed. But they had been promised this renewal, right? They have been promised redemption. And this would have been the perfect time. God, just come back and zap all the bad guys. Get rid of them. Take them away. So they justify their covenant-breaching behavior because they believe Yahweh abandoned his side, so I don't need to keep up my side. Of course he hadn't, right? They had simply rejected the love that he had shown them, and they didn't want it. They refused to believe his promises. What God had promised, what God had revealed through the prophets and the law, it wasn't enough. And they weren't taking their sin seriously enough 
to even think they even deserved any kind of exile or punishment. So the question is, what about us? <clears throat> when do we think we deserve justice? And when God reveals true justice and true love in the gospel, we say, oh yeah, that's, that's not what I want. I want an easy life. I want a new car. I want all my house upgrades. I want my kids to, even good things. I want my kids to not be wayward. I want you know, all the things that we want, right? The gospel isn't enough for us. And God's just like, look at the cross. So that's not enough. And on our worst days, we say no. And we live lives of idolatry, trying to fulfill ourselves, to give ourselves what we think we need. So you see, first thing we learn here is when our view of God suffers, our worship of God suffers. When our view of God suffers, our worship of God suffers. That's what we see in this first verse here. But don't worry, because God sets us straight. All right, and he's going to answer uh, this question. And it might surprise you how he answers it. If we look on to verse 3, the first part of verse 3 <clears throat> reads, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Just pause right there. So first, he's going to send his messenger to prepare the way. We all know who this is, right? John the baptizer, right? Uh, the same messenger mentioned, if you look, uh, flip a page in, in chapter 4, 5, and 6, verses 5 and 6, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So the gospel of Mark makes this really clear that it's John um, by introducing this and quoting this verse exactly and quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. And, um, and then in Mark 9, 11, we hear the disciples saying, Jesus is on the transfiguration. Jesus is, is uh, wh- why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And Jesus is like, you read Malachi? You know, that's, that's what he says. I tell you, Elijah has come, he says, and they did to him whatever they wanted. And he's talking about John the Baptist getting beheaded, right? And so John's job was to warn Israel about the coming judgment and call them to repent of their sin to prepare their ears for the coming Messiah. So that's who Malachi is talking about here in verse 1. So that's the first part. And then, what does this coming Messiah look like? Right? That's who we get to see next in the second half of verse 1. So the messenger will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming says the Lord of armies. So this is the one they were seeking. You asked, here he is. Where's the God of justice? Where is he at? Where are you at, God? I'm going to send him to you. Don't worry. He's coming. And uh, we, uh, and he's almost coming startlingly, like that, that word suddenly. We just sang it in angels from the round. Suddenly the Lord descending in his temple shall appear from this verse. Um, since the temple is Yahweh's temple, he's coming to his temple. So this messenger isn't just any old messenger. It's the Lord. It's his temple. He's coming to his own temple. This is the prophecies of Yahweh returning to Zion. That's what he's, ta- that's what he's talking about here. And this same, this same uh, Lord is also called a messenger. And so it might be confusing thinking that like this messenger is the same as the previous, but it's not. And I think the CSB has a capitalized, and I think that's appropriate because this Coming Lord is the messenger 
of the covenant. Um, And so the Lord you seek will come, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he will come. And so what does this messenger of the covenant mean? What covenant is he a messenger of? Well, Jesus himself, he says, um, his work, his blood of the new covenant, this new covenant in my blood, as we talk about in communion all the time, as we take the cup together, we quote that verse. He has come to fulfill the new covenant as his primary goal, which what provides us with new hearts of flesh. Jeremiah prophesies that. He has come as a messenger, as Isaiah says, proclaim the good news to the poor, declare as a messenger, declare the year of the Lord's favor, to give sight to the blind, to bring light to the dark. That's this messenger of the covenant. And that's why they will delight. You see this, uh, they will see this and delight. You're going to like it, he's saying. Uh, Recognize true justice, they're going to delight. And there's, this, there's definitely some irony, right? Because the Lord, in, in chapter 2, 17, he's accused of delighting in what? Delighting in the evil, right? God seems to be saying, um, you know, you want justice? I'll give you justice. I'll give you my messenger, and you're going to like it. And it's not going to be this forced way, like a kid in a headlock getting broccoli shoved down his throat. Not that I've ever done that. It's, it's not like that, right? It's this compelling way. Because they will not be able to help themselves when they see the coming messenger of the covenant. They will not be able to help themselves but delight. Because God's kindness, his grace is compelling. If we have eyes to see, if we have ears to hear the good news, it compels us. It answers our doubt. It helps us understand what we really need. It, prom- it never necessarily promises us comfort, um, but it does promise us purification, sanctification uh, from our sins. And that's what we're going to see in this next verse. And so if you continue on, we see what it's like more about this purification in verse 3 and 4. It says, he will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. So it appears that the main purpose for his coming, right? What the God of justice comes to do, the answer to that question, where's the God of justice, is to cleanse his people, specifically the priesthood, um, and enable them to worship him. That's kind of the the language you see here. They will. He will refine them, and then they will present offerings in righteousness. They will please the Lord. The great injustice, then, is that God wasn't being worshipped as he ought to be. Worship was broken. And so why is this the answer, and why does this need to be done uh, in, in this context, in the historical context? What was going on? Well, we have this... You know, if you really like this back and forth questioning, it happens like four or five times in the book of Malachi. It's a great read. I encourage you to read it. And if you just look back a few pages in chapter one, we'll see what the priesthood is up to. This is why worship was broken in their context, okay? Verse one, chapter, chapter one, verse six. Priests, you despise my name, yet you ask, same thing. How? What do we do, right? How have we despised your name? By presenting defiled foods on my altar. Well, how have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? 
When you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. And then later in chapter 1, you bring stolen, lame, and sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept this from your hands? Right? The picture's clear. These guys, um, and we need to grasp this, though, if we're going to apply it to our lives, though. Um, these Israelite farmers, peasants, they were bringing lame, blind, stolen animals to the priest and saying, uh, you know, I know it looks bad. You know, the wolf took a chunk out of it there. He has some worms. Uh, he's blind, he's sick. I don't know. Probably sterile, uh, but you know, God hasn't really been that great to me. You know, just it, this is just reality. God isn't that great. I know um, you're going to just torch this sheep anyway. I don't really care. And you know, uh, the reality is, um, I know it says somewhere in the law that I'm supposed to do this, so I guess I'll just do it. Um, and here it is. And the priest probably did the same thing. And so he took it, and he did it, and he offered those sacrifices the sacrifices uh, to God. So we see why worship needs to be renewed. The priest, despite the clear instructions, um, did not worship God as he called them to. And that's why we need this verse 3 and 4, a purifying of the sons of Levi and refining them. Uh, The Lord whom Israel is seeking, they look for justice and the true justice comes and renews worship, renews their hearts, enables them to actually actually worship and uh, truly. But what does this actually look like? So uh, this is a prophecy, right? When is it fulfilled? That's the question. What does this look like when these words are given flesh and blood, right? And the messenger comes. Well, of course, it takes the form of Jesus, of Nazareth, who as the Messiah, as the representative of his people, the messenger of the new covenant in his blood took the sins upon himself and made purification for them, dying on the cross. That enables us, as we receive him by faith, to worship him in spirit and in truth. We are the priesthood of the new covenant. Hebrews 9, I have it for you on the screen. Verse 13 and 14 says, For the blood of, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. See, dead works were the problem. Dead worship is the problem. And Christ takes care of that as the messenger of the new covenant. He changes our hearts and makes us worthy, worshipful priests before God. And that's the result of the purification And the New Testament authors all understood this. There's the passage from Romans 12. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's priestly language. Holy, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. And 1 Peter 3.5 is even more clear. You yourselves, like the living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And this purification, it's absolutely necessary if worship of God is going to happen. And this is the injustice. People don't worship God as they ought. And the God of justice comes down and he makes it happen. 
We're so concerned about petty injustices that we perceive are against us. But the greatest injustice is God is not worshipped for who he is. And the reality is he's not standing up there pouting about it. He comes down and does something about it. He came down and got his hands dirty and bloody. And in a humble and compelling way to show that he's worthy. And our biggest problem is we don't see God for who he is. We don't come and receive grace and mercy and help in our time of need. It's a great injustice and that's a huge problem for us. May we see God for who he is this morning. That's not the only kind of justice that needs to happen. As we see, if we continue reading, the kind of justice God offers here in Christ's coming is not just purification, not just a refining fire, but also a consuming fire. And we see this justice of God in verse 5. It says, I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against the sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. So this is the final part of God's response. And the wicked will not be able to stand, we say, when he appears. So unlike the refining fire, for those in Christ... The judgment will consume those not found in Christ. And they're known by their fruit. They don't care about the things God cares about. In fact, it's the exact opposite. God cares about the orphan, the widow, those who are oppressed. And judgment will come. And we see another glimpse of that judgment in Malachi 4.1. It says, The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root or branch. The refining fire becomes a consuming fire. Maybe when you think about justice, this is what you think about. Yeah, get the bad guys. Come on. All those bad guys out there. Not me. But this ought to sober us because really the only difference between refining fire and consuming fire is what container you're in by faith. If you're in the Messiah or not. And if you submit yourself to the Messiah, to the purifier, the one who loves you and gave up his life for you, who wants to purify you through his spirit, who lived and died and rose again in your place. It's a purifying fire. But if you were here and have not put your faith in that Messiah, in Jesus alone, for your salvation, and the purification that comes from Him, then there is no hope. And the main purpose of Christ's coming was to bring this new covenant, which changes our hearts and enables us to worship without fear. That's what we need. This is the culminating act of Scripture. It's a culminating act of history. It would not be good to ignore it. It is not to be taken lightly. So if you haven't come to him, would you come this morning, surrender to the one who came humbly that first Christmas, died to rise, and rose with your freedom and your security in his hand. And he will come again to judge Those are our deepest needs, and God provides those deepest needs for us. In this passage, we saw that he provides purification of sin. He provides the changed heart that enables true worship and judgment here, judgment of evil. And so the second part we see in this passage is that God's justice 
takes care of our deepest problems. God's justice takes care of our deepest problems. We just have to change our hearts to see what our deepest problems really are. If we really see that, we really can glory in the gospel. Taking care of sin, giving us a new heart, evil being judged, that's what we need. But why does God do it this way? You know, if you read all these doubts and blasphemy almost from, from Israel, their terrible heart attitudes, this obnoxious pride, this false worship. Why doesn't he just send them back to exile? Why doesn't he just wipe them off the face of the earth? We have that answer in the final verse. This verse holds the whole passage together. It holds, and this concept holds the entire Old Testament together. Why God shows grace to broken people. Because I, the Lord, have not changed you, descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed. It explains his unexpected grace towards people who routinely rebel against him. So you see here the phrase descendants of Jacob or children of Jacob. And it's used only 15 times in the Hebrew Bible, and 12 of them are in Genesis. And it uh, harkens back to the origin story of Israel, right? Jacob's, great, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the children of Jacob. And as you may remember, you know, the question is, what is this thing God hasn't changed from? And I would suggest to you it's his covenant promises, the unchanging promises of God. And so if you remember that first covenant God made with Abraham, it wasn't really typical for the time. So the scene was Abraham's like half conscious on the desert floor. He prepared the scene. He cut some animals in half. And uh, there was this trail of blood. And the, the animal halves were on either side of him. And he was just laying on, the, laying on the ground, passed out. And it's actually a traditional treaty. And the, it was called a suzerain-vassal treaty. And the suzerain would be a great king. The vassal would be a vassal king, a lower king, still in charge of a, a territory. And so these two would meet between these animal halves and shake hands or something. The idea was, man, if you break this covenant, that's going to be you. That's the deal. But what happens? In Genesis 12, Abraham is laying on the ground, and God himself goes through the halves of the animals for him, saying essentially, anything goes wrong on your end, it's on me. He had to take out the failed human out of the equation to make something happen, right? Because if he depended on Abraham, it would just end up like Adam, right? Doesn't work. He had to graciously enter into a covenant with humans, not depending on their performance. And he would do what he promised in spite of Abraham's failures, in spite of the failures of his children. So how is that justice, though? It's because God makes his own justice. He enters into covenant with sinful humans, but he justly and faithfully carries out his promises. He does what he says. That's God's righteousness, because he does what he says. He promised Israel they would be vindicated from their enemies. They'd be a blessing. He promised they'd have their law, the law written on their hearts. He justly fulfills those things, and he made it foolproof because he wasn't depending on people. So the question in your handout there is, uh, 
you have a quote from Romans 3. That's the question Paul proposes in Romans 3. It's just like, how is God just? You can't just declare sinners righteous. That doesn't work. That's the dilemma. But it's solved where? It's solved in the cross. God put forward Jesus as the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. He justified sinners united to him. So God is just. And he is the justifier of those in Christ. So since it's not up to us, we learn that God's faithfulness brings hope amidst failure. It's God's faithfulness that brings us hope amidst our own failure. So let's turn back to the original question. The one that often haunts us in our doubts, right? Where is the God of justice? And how you answer this question is telling It's telling in those moments, and your worship is going to be affected. So when your friends and family get sick, when we experience loss, when people get disabled or die, when we lose our rights, heaven forbid, right? We're entitled to our jobs. We lose, we have financial difficulty, like whatever it is for you, right? Um, And we're frustrated because we look out at the culture and we see those perfect people, you know, in the celebrities with the perfect bodies living however they want to live. And all the people with all the power who are all strong and makes decisions and just does whatever they want, right? And they just live in rebellion against God. We might be tempted in some dark corner of our hearts to say, where is the God of justice? All those who do evil are good. They're blessed. What is going on? You know, we, we struggle with sin, and we're, we're fighting our sin, and those people don't care. So, you know, we, fight, we live in an overly sexualized culture, and yet we struggle with sexual sin. We live in a hateful culture that's, you know, overly politicized, and we struggle with hate. We're trying to fight this, right? Our culture is so materialistic, and we try to fight envy in our hearts. Yet people just do whatever they want. They don't even try to stop those impulses. And we have the temptation than to just give up. I'm like, what's the point? What is the point of fighting anymore? And we become just like these corrupt priests who just offer that lame sacrifice. So, you know, we come to church out of rote, just behavior, or even tithe, maybe even enjoy fellowship, um, but our relationship with God is distant. Maybe it's even out of spite. We think he owes us something, or he even hates us, or um, he's not worth our time. So, you know, we just do the daily, hello, God, you know, pull it back by your head. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for my Savior, Jesus' name, amen, right? That's it. That's all we do. Instead of a living sacrifice that's a reasonable act of service because of who God is, we offer that blind, lame, worm-infested sacrifice that's just a loveless act. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's corrupt. It's broken. And so... When we ask, where's the God of justice? There's blocks in our hearts to seeing who God is, right? The doubt's there. But if we're honest, when we doubt, there's shame too, right? It's like, man, God doesn't, like, I'm doubting. God knows I'm doubting. I'm not going to God because he sees my doubt. And that's not okay. I'm not allowed to do that. Well, when we see this passage, you look at the rest of Scripture too, there's room to ask questions. There's room to doubt. If we're willing to listen to God's answers. You know, you have Job, you have the psalmist, who they complain, they question God. Israel, the God of justice doesn't just zap us 
He doesn't just zap them. They are not consumed when we doubt. We're not. He says it right there. Because he doesn't change. This surprising grace is that he doesn't argue against our puny little words of judgment against him. And he doesn't fight back with great big words of judgment against us. He confronts us. He answers us with a person. With the person of Jesus. And Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn it, but to save it. And it's his salvation. It's beautiful. It's compelling. It's disarming. It's purifying our hearts. When we see it, we delight in him. We can't help it but to delight. So we need to search our hearts. Where do we view God wrongly? What is the, the lie we're believing about God and his love for us? How is our suffering maybe skewed the picture of God in Christ? You know, what keeps us from coming, as Hebrews calls us, come boldly before the throne of grace for help in time of need. So have we held God's law, our own laws of our own kingdom above God's? Something he's never promised us. Do we expect something from him that he's never promised us? Yet we hold him to it and then we get angry at him when he's not following through. Because the very things we ought to hold him to, the ones he calls us to, hold him to, the promises he's made it to us, that he's revealed his heart to us in Christ, that's actually going to fulfill us and provide for us. Not the things that we think we need. And his justice began. It began with the act of free grace in the desert. That man, that fallen, fickle Abraham passed out on the ground. And that stream of redemption goes to the bloody cross where Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's compelling. And because of that string of redemption, that string of grace throughout Scripture, he can say, you're not consumed. I don't change. We need to turn to the beauty of the gospel because it's compelling. It's where love and justice agree. And so that main point at the bottom there, that's the main point for today. When in doubt, look to Jesus to see true justice and mercy at work for you. You're looking for justice, look to Jesus. If you're looking for mercy and grace, look to Jesus. I encourage you to take courage. Don't covet the world. Don't Allow your suffering to define God's heart for you. Submit to his heart as he shares his sufferings with you. As you share in his suffering. And cry out to him. Learn to lament. Ask for a new understanding, a renewed heart. So you can respond to his act of free grace as your reasonable act of worship. Presenting your body as a living sacrifice. As a true and faithful priest as of the new covenant. And that when you fail, he's just... But he's your justifier. And because he doesn't change, you are not consumed, but you are renewed. So let's praise our Lord together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for these truths. They're almost too wonderful to grasp. Thank you for providing a way for our doubting hearts to come before your throne in our complaining and in our questioning. Know that you welcome, because of Jesus, you welcome that we are not consumed. And you answer us, not with condemnation and judgment, but with the person of Christ who came to live, to die, to rise again in our place and to send us his spirit. So we thank you for all these things that we can never repay and you don't even ask us to repay. Give us a fuller 
grander vision of the gospel and of you and your heart for us, Father. We confess our weakness, but we boast, God, we boast in your strength that you sustain us through these things and through the work of Christ. So may we submit and surrender to your love for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.